Thank you, Seth. That was really great worship. I actually forgot that I was coming up to preach right after that. I was just so engrossed in the worship, and I thought, oh yeah, I'm about to walk up there and read the, read the Bible in front of everyone. Let's do that. I'm going to sit back down. No. That was really good, brother. Thank you so much. Mark 15, 33 through 41 is where we're going to be this morning. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This is the word of God. You can be seated. And as you're being seated, would you please bow with me? Father, what a significant text. Lord, what a... What a moment in history, this moment where you breathed your last, cried out, and then gave up your spirit, and your head fell, and you died, Lord. You completed that work. And we, of course, know that it is not ultimately completed until you rise from the dead, but Lord, you completed the part of absorbing the wrath of your Father, and we're so thankful for this. We're here because of this. Lord, I pray that you would please soften our hearts this morning. I pray that you would make them good soil because this word is being scattered right now. It's being scattered far and wide and I pray that your Holy Spirit would plant the seed deep into our hearts and I pray that you would bring about a crop 30, 60, 100 times as much, please, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for being here this morning. I was thinking about all of you uh, yesterday and uh, this morning also. I get up early and I just kind of polish up the sermon, make sure everything's good with it. And I was thinking about all of you and just thinking about our wonderful little church and how much I love it. And I'm just so thankful to be here, thankful for each one of you. So everything's been building up to this moment, this moment in our text. The text of Mark really slowed down a lot over the past couple, uh, over the past couple chapters it's really slowing down. It's really been covering basically a, a week's worth of time almost and uh, over the past couple chapters and giving us a lot of details about things that were done and, and said in these last couple of days leading up to this point. What point is that? Well, the death of the Son of God. That's why I've titled this sermon that this morning, just the simple title, The Death of the Son of God. We're also going to see that one of the main reasons why Mark even wrote this gospel gets its final attention 
in our text this morning. What is that? Well, you'll see here in a moment, but one of the main points that Mark brought up at the very beginning of his gospel gets brought up here again at the end of the gospel, and that's very intentional, which we'll talk about here in a moment. But let's look at verses 33 and 34. When the sixth hour had come, by the way, that's noon, okay? That's 12 o'clock. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So for three hours, it's dark, dark, dark. Not just, oh, look, it's cloudy, but a darkness came over the land. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cries with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want to compare what's happening right then with the beginning of Mark, how Mark started off his gospel. Let's look at Mark 1, 9 through 11. If you've got your Bible turned there, Mark 1, 9 through 11, or I believe it'll be on the screen behind me as well. But Mark 1, 9 through 11 is quite the contrast to what's happening right now. And I want to point that out. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, look at this, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son. With you, I'm well pleased. Quite the contrast. How does Jesus start his ministry? With the heavens being torn open. I don't know what that looked like, but I'm just assuming. I've always kind of pictured it in my mind that it was bright. There was, there was brightness there. I just can't imagine the heavens being torn open and displaying glory where the Holy Spirit then comes down in the form of a dove and it being just kind of blah, just kind of like, oh, yeah, sky ripped open, nothing special there. I'm thinking brightness, like when I picture it. The text doesn't say that, I know, but I'm just thinking, how, how could it not have been bright and light and shining like when Jesus is transfigured? His, his clothes become whiter than anyone could ever bleach them, we're told. Bright, shining. When we see angels at the resurrection, they're bright, shining like the sun. So we have this heaven torn open. It's bright, it's light, more than likely. And then also we have the Father speaking. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. The Father is giving approval to the Son and there's brightness in the sky it's the beginning of his ministry. Now let's look at the end of his ministry. What do we see? Quite the contrast. There's not brightness. There's darkness. Is the Father giving his approval now? No. The Father's forsaking him. Quite the contrast, isn't it? I think we're supposed to see that. I think we're supposed to see that. I think we're supposed to remember back to the very beginning of how this book started. Because now we're at the, almost at the book's end. We just have a few more verses, actually, until this, this book is done. Quite the contrast, and we're supposed to see that. We're going to elaborate, of course, more on this forsakenness because it is, for lack of a better words, and just so everybody can understand it, it's a big deal. <laughs> In one of the very old copies of John Fox's book, The Fox's Book of Martyrs, back when it was still called The Acts and Monuments of John Fox. That's what it was actually called. It was actually titled that before 
that ever took on the name Fox's Book of Martyrs, he didn't title it that. It just got that name over the years, Fox's Book of Martyrs. And if you haven't heard of it, what is it? It's a collection of martyrs. A martyr is someone, children, who is, has laid down his or her life for what he or she believes in. And so John Fox, back in the 1500s, took this up and said, you know, I'm going to make a collection. I'm going to, I'm going to write, start writing these things down, uh, what I'm seeing and hearing about from other people. And he called it the Acts and Monuments of John Fox. He tells of a 19-year-old young man named William Hunter, 19 years old. He lived in the mid-1500s and uh, was a product of the Protestant Reformation over there in Europe. And God was working through the Reformation at that time to bring light and to bring truth back to the people because it had been eclipsed. And for taking his stand on Holy Scripture, he was, he was assigned to be burned to death by the Roman Catholic Church, and he was. Listen to what John Fox wrote. This is from one of his old writings. It's actually really hard to even find this anymore. Then said William, this is William Hunter, who's at the stake, tied up now, Son of God, shine upon me. And immediately the sun and the element shone out of a dark cloud so full in his face that he was constrained to look another way, whereat the people mused because it was so dark a little time before. Then the priest came to his brother Robert with a popish book um, to carry to William that he might recant, which book his brother would not meddle with. Children, that means like he would have nothing to do with it. He was like, nope, not going to touch that. Then William, seeing the priest and perceiving how he, how he would have showed him the book, said, Away, thou false prophet! Beware of them, good people, and come away from their abominations, lest that you partake of their plagues. This is a 19-year-old. Immediately, fire was made. Then William cast his psalter right into his brother's hand. Children, a psalter is a collection of the book of Psalms. So he had, he had a collection of the book of Psalms with him. He cast it into his brother's hand, who said, William, think on the holy passion of Christ, and be not afraid of death. And William answered, I am not afraid. Then lift he up his hands to heaven and said, Lord, 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 receive my spirit. And casting down his head again into the, into the smothering smoke, he yielded up his life for the truth, sealing it with his blood to the praise of his God. Now what young William Hunter was afforded that day was encouragement and strength in the source of a shining light out of dark clouds upon his face that was so bright the sun was so bright shining upon his face, he had to even turn his head away. It was so bright, and everyone saw it that day. He was afforded strength, and he was afforded comfort from the Father in heaven that day from a dark cloud for giving up his life for the truth. But our Lord Jesus was not afforded such encouragement and light, was he? In fact, Matthew Henry says this, But our Lord Jesus was denied the light of the sun when he was in his suffering to signifying the withdrawing of the light of God's countenance 
And this he complained of more than anything. He did not complain of his disciples forsaking him, but of his father forsaking him. He said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't say, why have the disciples forsaken me? He was most concerned with his father being the one who forsook him that day because that had never happened before. Not ever. And it would never happen again. Not ever. I've talked about this before, but you need to understand something happened this day, which I don't even have words for. I'm going to try to, with my rough tongue, just try to make you see what actually happened here that day. The Holy Trinity had existed in perfect union forever, from all eternity past. How long was that? How long was all eternity past? Eternity. 20 trillion years plus 20 trillion more years plus 20 trillion more years. I mean, there was no beginning to this God. He never began He just always has been, and he had always existed in perfect unity with himself. The one God who eternally exists in three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Never any break of union ever. And here, and I don't even know how this works, but there was not a breaking of the Trinity, not at all, but a forsaking of God the Father to God the Son, because God the Son became sin in that moment when he was drinking all of the wrath of all of everyone who would ever believe. And I don't have the words, I wish I did, to communicate more clearly and more deeply how significant this was. It's unique. And so devastating. At the same time, Lord, help them, <laughs> help us get it. I can't even, I don't even have the words, Father. But the Holy Spirit and the Son and the Father experienced something that they'll never experience again, and the Lord Jesus was forsaken. And because he was forsaken, guess what? William Hunter wasn't. Because Jesus was forsaken, you will never be. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, for you, Christian, if you're a believer in this room this morning, you'll never, ever be forsaken, not ever. I don't care how much you're going through. I don't care what suffering you've ever been through. I don't care how hard something you've ever gone through, Christian. If you were in the faith at that time, number one, it was ordained by God. It was not an accident. And you were so far from being forsaken so far. You would have never been forsaken, and you never will be forsaken. Why? Because Jesus was. He was forsaken on your behalf. And you will never be. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? Some of the bystanders hearing him crying out with this loud voice, what they interpreted as him calling to Elijah, perhaps, said, This, behold, he's calling Elijah. Some of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed to give it to him to drink, saying, wait, wait, don't do that. Let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. As you might know, the Jews believed, 
that Elijah would come before the Messiah. He would precede the coming of the Messiah to prepare his way, and Jesus actually told us he did come in John the Baptist. John the Baptist was even wearing the same clothes Elijah wore, camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. They even dressed the same. And Jesus said, if you can accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So they were right in saying that Elijah was supposed to come before the Messiah came, but they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah anyway. So this was just further mockery, further mockery. If he's the Messiah, wait, wait, wait. Let's see if Elijah comes. Let's see if Elijah comes and gets him down, perhaps. Maybe Elijah will come and help him. (laughs) And they continue to scoff and mock. They're relentless, aren't they? We saw they've been doing this now for three sermons. They've They've been mocking him in some way. They are relentless. He is crying out, suffering, screaming, gasping for breath, and they're still pointing and laughing and loving it. That's how deep the deception of the human heart can be. That's how thick the deception of the wicked one can be upon someone. They can look at the Son of God and mock him for hours, see him crying out for hours and still mock and still make fun and still hate. It's bewildering how hard-hearted they are and how bloodthirsty they are. These Holy men. Don't think you're beyond getting to that state. Now, if you're a Christian, of course, the Holy Spirit will keep you from ever becoming like that. But what I'm saying is, don't think that you're above the devil's deception, though. You're not. And how you fight against that is the same way Jesus did with the Word of God, yes? It's not just going to happen just because you really, really want it to. You have to put the work in. You have to be in the word, be in prayer. And if you're saying, Cohen, that's, you know, it's just hard for me to do that. I say this, join the fallen humanity club. It's not easy for any of us, okay? And the devil fights to make it especially hard for you. And he fights to put, oh, other things in front of your face. He can tell when you're having an inkling sometimes to read the word of God perhaps. And he says, oh, oh, let me, let me distract. Oh, don't forget about this thing you want to buy. Oh, don't forget about this. And he'll see to it that it doesn't happen if you don't have a plan and if you're not disciplined. And he'll help you be disciplined, okay? But it's not just going to happen to you just because you really, really want it to. Wait, let's see if Elijah will come and take him down. And of course, we know Jesus would not come down. Why? Because he was that faithful and that obedient and that beautiful. His obedience is a beautiful picture for us, even, is it not? Verse 37 tells us that Jesus utters a loud cry and breathes his last. What's this loud cry? Mark doesn't supply it. Luke does. Luke tells us what he said in these last words. Luke gives us the words that Jesus said out loud. Luke 23, 46 Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Did you know that he was quoting scripture again? This one sort of gets overlooked. This one doesn't get as much attention as some of the other ones do. But he was quoting the Psalms yet again. He's just saturated with the word of God, isn't he? You know why? Because he is the word of God. And it's just pouring out of his mouth. 
So many things that he said on the cross were, were Scripture or were at least um, influenced by Scripture. Psalm 31, 1 through 5. Originally a Psalm of David. Let me just read verses 1 through 5 to you because verse 5 is what he quotes. But the context getting up to verse 5 is good and rich because it ties back to Jesus as well. Listen to what David wrote in Psalm 31, verses 1 through 5. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to, to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. See Jesus quoting the scriptures again there. Into your hands I commit my spirit. The only thing he did was he said hands instead of hand. He just made it plural, but that's the only thing he changed. Quoting verse 5 shows that Jesus was taking to heart the heart of this psalm. And what's the heart of this psalm? What was David's main point here up to this point in the psalm? He's placing his full and absolute trust in God. Don't you see that in verses 1 through 5? What's he say? He says things like God is his refuge, God's his fortress, God's his rock. And the one place where he knew he could rest his soul safely, right? Isn't that what David's saying in all of these verses? You're my fortress, you're my refuge, you're my rock. You're the place that I can go for safety. Because what is a fortress? It's a strong tower, it's a, a refuge, what, a place that you go for safety. What's a rock? Something that's firm and unmovable. He's saying, you're all those things, God. You're all those things. I know my soul can rest secure in you no matter what else is going on. And isn't Jesus showing that trust when he quotes that? He's quoting that, showing that what's true about his heart at that point is the heart of what David was saying. He knew, you are going to receive me. I rest in the fact that you're my fortress, you're my rock, and I'll be going to you at this moment. I'll be going to you now. God forsook him, yes, but it was momentarily, and he knew that. That's why it says in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. He knew there was joy on the, on the other end, but that forsakenness that happened right there was very, very real. I was a child once, and okay, that's, I should start that off because you're like, well, duh. <laughs> when I was a child once, I was in the store with my mom, and this has probably happened to all of you. You turn around, and mom's not there. And what happens? Sheer panic. Why? Because your parent, number one, got you to do that store. Your parent fed you that morning. Your parent dressed you. You, you, you just, parents do everything for you when you're that young, right? And you know that without mom and dad, you're in big trouble. You are pretty much forsaken is how I felt at that point. I knew she didn't forsake me on purpose, but I felt like, oh my word, I am totally lost. And in my great childhood swing of emotions, my world was, was gone. And then I yell out, Mommy, 
<laughs> and she finds me, right? But a taste, but a, but a small way that we can even sort of, kind of, not even close, understand this, this, this separation, this hopeless feeling, because for Jesus, it, it wasn't just that he was lost in his store. It was that the father really turned his back on him for the first time ever. And we can't even pretend to understand what that was like, but it was, it was real. But it was temporary. And Jesus knew that. That's why his last words were, into your hands I commit my spirit. I'm trusting. You're my rock. You're my fortress. You're the only one. You're my refuge. And you won't utterly forsake me. And he was right. He was right. Those words that he himself had inspired David to write a thousand years before that. (laughs) Jesus inspired David to write those words. He now puts in his own mouth and uses as his own last prayer. You know, it's interesting too because Peter brings out a beautiful application from what happened there. Look at 1 Peter 4.19. 1 Peter 4.19. Uh, if I sent that reference to our friends, I may not have sent that one. 1 Peter 4.19 says this. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Isn't that what Jesus did on the cross? Into your hands I commit my spirit. And Peter here is saying, when you suffer, church, when you suffer, because he's speaking to the early church who was undergoing some of that poverty, persecution, prison that Butch told us about. He told them, because they were in the midst of it, entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. He was reminding them just what Jesus did. Remember what Jesus did? A perfect example? Do what he did and trust your soul to a faithful God while doing good, he says. Don't stop doing good, but entrust your soul while you're in the midst of your suffering. Don't let your suffering ever make you stop doing good. We tend to want to do that. Suffering makes you, listen to me, suffering makes you focus on self, does it not? I'm hurting. I don't feel good. I don't have this. I want this. I wish things were different. I, me, I, me, me, I. You know what gets you out of your suffering? Focusing on others. I found that again and again and again. I will stay in the depths of despair until I start to focus on others, until I focus on what I do still have, friends and family who love me, and what do they need? How are they hurting? Let me focus on them instead, and boy, it snaps you out of it like nothing else can. That's why he says, entrust your soul to God in the midst of your suffering while doing good. Don't stop doing good when you're suffering, church, okay? Uh, Jesus, in the midst of his suffering, was doing so much good, wasn't he? For you and for me. And then look at verse 38. Again, so much happening here. This just will never happen again. This forsaking of The sun will never happen again. Look at this in verse 38. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. How? From top to bottom, showing that no man did this. God did this. This curtain was very elaborate, very thick, made of multiple layers of very fine material. No strong man could even rip it, (laughs) probably. God rips it from top to bottom. 
No more separation between God and man. This curtain, let me, I'm just assuming everybody knows what this is about. Let me not do that. In the temple, it was divided into two sections. You've got the holy place, which was a bit larger, and you've got the most holy place, which was a bit smaller, and held the Ark of God, that beautiful golden box that held the Ten Commandments, held Moses' staff that budded, held a portion of the manna that came down. All that was in the Ark of God. But above that Ark, on the lid, were two cherubim, and in between them, the holy presence of God dwelled here on earth in a spot here on earth. It, it dwelled there. Now, of course, he was not bound to that spot. He was in heaven as well. He was everywhere all the time as well. But he also allowed his holy presence to dwell in that spot. It's called the mercy seat. And only one man was ever to go in that room, and only once a year, and with blood, sprinkling it as he went in to cover his own sins, to cover the sins of the people. It was showed that I'm a sinner, but look, there's been a death to cover my sin. And that was temporary because they had to do it every year. So no one ever went in there except for one man with a lot of different rituals that had to be done first. And now, for the first time ever since the tabernacle and temple had existed, this curtain is ripped open. And had you been in the holy place as a priest ministering like you normally do, you would have seen in that room for the first time and probably had to change your tunic. <laughs> this is monumental. No more separation between God and man. No more curtain needed to veil the presence of the holy God from our view. Why? Because Jesus is the way into the holy presence of God. He is the door. No more sacrifices are needed to be made before man can approach God. Why? Jesus was the once for all sacrifice. No more priests required to make intercession for the people going in and out of the holy place. Why? Jesus is our great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for the saints, we're told in the book of Hebrews. And lastly, no more temple even needed for the presence of God to meet with his people. Why? The Holy Spirit indwells the believer who is now called the temple, and he indwells the believer by faith alone. This tearing of the curtain was to show to everyone that the old covenant has been fulfilled in the new. All that the old pointed to, the temple, its sacrifices, the blood, all of these things are now fulfilled in Christ. And God said, let me make it clear, rip and about 35 or so years after that, the temple is destroyed, never to be rebuilt, because it's not needed. It's actually rebuilt daily as people come to faith in Christ. We're the temple of the living God. I do recommend a study on the temple. It would be beneficial for your soul, because when you carry all those wonderful things over and you realize, oh my word, I'm the temple? I'm now the temple, the dwelling place of the Spirit of God, and I'm supposed to be that beautiful? I'm supposed to be that? Wow. It really makes you 
Examine yourself, and it really makes you strive toward, of course, holiness. The curtain of temple is torn from top to bottom. So significant, so significant. Verse 39, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that, it, that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Let me elaborate on this. What's a centurion? A Roman official who's in charge of 100 men. That's why it starts with C-E-N-T, cent, like centennial means 100, right? He's, he's in charge of 100 men. So he's a, he's a pretty substantial leader. He would command respect. Who did Mark write this book to? Do you recall Mark's original audience? It was the Romans. He wrote to a Roman audience. So Mark is intentional here to make sure that he writes down a centurion looked up at Jesus at the cross and seeing the manner at which he died. And he said, surely this man is the son of God. Do we think that the Roman centurion understood everything perfectly at that moment? And he understood everything about the Messiahship of Jesus and all these things? Probably not. But in him stating that Jesus is the son of God, he's at least acknowledging this man has some special connection to deity. He's at least acknowledging that. Do, do I think that he became a believer at that point, like truly faith and everything? I don't know. But he's at least acknowledging this man is connected to deity in some way, and that is unmistakable. Mark is intentional in putting that in. You might recall the image that I made for us at the beginning of our study of Mark. I, I, I talked about the three things that Mark emphasizes, three things that Mark emphasizes in this gospel. I said, hey, be looking for these as we study. These are going to come up. I said for the first one, Mark emphasizes the authority of Jesus. Mark emphasizes being a disciple of Jesus. And then lastly, I said he emphasizes the real Jesus. Jesus is really the Son of God. We get that at the beginning a few different times. Look at this other slide that I made. So Mark makes this clear for, from the very first verse. Mark 1.1. Mark 1.1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. First verse, he says that. Then, what do we get? Just 10 verses after that in Mark 1.11. As we've already read, the Father acknowledges that he's the son of God. Behold, this is my beloved son. With you I'm well pleased. So the father declares Jesus is the son of God as well. Then in chapter three, we even get demons. Demons <laughs> declaring it to be true as well. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, it says in Mark 3, 1, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. Demons were Screaming this out as he was casting them out. They knew who he was. They'd known him for countless ages. So at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, we get this declared again and again. And then here at the end, we get it again from a Roman's lips. It's like, a, it's like the Gospel of Mark is like a son of God 
sandwich. <laughs> it's, it's declared at the beginning, it's declared at the end. And that's intentional. That's on purpose. Again, we're supposed to see that. He starts with it and he ends with it. Why? Because that's his point. That's his point. He wants you to see the real Jesus. He wants you to see Jesus' authority. And then therefore, he wants you to be a disciple of Jesus. That's the point of Mark's gospel. And the Romans, reading this, would especially take hold of this, wow, a centurion? A centurion declared that he's the son of God? Maybe I should rethink this Jesus guy. Maybe I should rethink this Jesus guy. Because guess what? Them reading this in that day, they could probably go find that man who witnessed it and say, did you really say that that day? He said, yeah, I did. So you really believe, you really believe that he's connected to God in some way, like, like he's, he's the son of God. He's connected to deity. Yes, I really do. I'm telling you straight up, I really do. Let, let me tell you about what I saw that day. And Lord willing, he did come to faith. Some of the Romans did. We know that. The man who Jesus healed his son, he came to faith. He was a, a Roman. And many others actually one of the greatest compliments that Jesus ever gives to someone about their faith is from a Roman. He says, come to my house and do this for me. And No, he actually, I'm sorry, he says, I don't need you to come. Just say the word. And he says, I haven't found such great faith, not even in Israel, not even among the Jews who were given the law, who were given the divine commands of God, who were given the holy Torah, all these things. I haven't even seen such great faith in them. So they could go find this man and tell him, truly, this is the son of God. You've got to make that declaration as well. You've got to, listen guys, please. You've got to make a choice about Jesus as well. All of you do. All of you do. No one gets to go away from Jesus neutral. You have to look at him as well. You have to listen to what I'm saying right now as well and say, that's true or no, that's not true. Maybe you're, maybe you're saying, you know, I'm still thinking on it. Okay, that's fine. But guess what? You're right where the devil wants you. Because if he can convince you to keep on waiting and keep on waiting and keep on waiting, he has a million distractions for you. And they're all so enticing to your flesh. And he'll keep putting them in front of you. I'm telling you right now, there are a million distractions for you. And they're tailor-made to you. Tailor-made. He knows you very well. And if I were him, I would keep distracting you too. If I can just get you to forget about God and put him off, I wouldn't even tell you that Jesus is bad. That'd be a little too obvious. I would say, oh yeah, you should totally respect him, but don't forget about this video game. Don't forget about this movie. Don't forget about this car you want. Don't forget about, look at that instead. Yes, don't worry. We'll get to Jesus later. Yes, he is. He's a cool guy and you should respect him. But look at this. I'm telling you, that's what I would do. Because do you want to know something about you? You're easily distracted. You know how I know that? 
Because so am I. You want to know something else about you? You forget things very easily, don't you? Even important things. But you know what you don't seem to forget? And it's weird. Wicked things. I don't, I don't know why that... Well, actually, I do. I think it's evil. I can bring worldly, secular, godless songs to my head. So easy sometimes. But not a praise song. I don't know why that is. It may even be a song, a wicked song I haven't heard in 20 years. I can still sing the lyrics. Why is that? But last Sunday's songs that Seth let us in, and I'm like, which ones did we sing? He wants you to forget certain things and remember others. It's a good tactic. I'm telling you, I would do it if I were him because it works. How do we fight it? The more saturated you are with truth, the less room there is for anything else, right? A professor once told a student that I was in college with, a student went to the professor and said, you know, I'm struggling with all these worldly thoughts. I'm struggling with this lust, and I'm struggling with all these things. And he said, what do you listen to? Like, what do you usually listen to? He's like, well, these songs, they weren't godly. What do you usually watch? Well, these movies, they weren't godly. So I think I, think I know why you're struggling. You get out what you put in, right? You've got to make a choice about the Son of God. And it's going to be harder to make the right choice when you're flooded with worldliness. It's easier when you're in places like this where you get to detox from the world. And this man looked at the Son of God and said, truly, this is the Son of God. Mark ends with these ladies. This is wonderful. This is wonderful. I really like this emphasis here. We conclude with the faithfulness of many women who followed Jesus. We've got Mary Magdalene, where Jesus cast seven demons out of her. You've got Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph. And then Salome. She's the mother of James and John. Remember, their father was Zebedee. Zebedee was married to Salome. This is the mom. She followed Jesus as well. Isn't that great? When he was in Galilee, many other women also came up from Jerusalem. Ladies, it's just, it's just the truth, it, it seems. Not always, but it, it just seems that ladies have a, a bit of an easier time coming to faith in Christ than the men. I don't know if it's our pride or I don't know what, but when we were missionaries, almost all the churches there were about 80% women. Very few men came to church when we were missionaries. You'd see a handful, but very, very, very few. Ladies, you get a special spot in Scripture. I don't know if you noticed that, but the ladies are also the first ones to see Jesus, the first ones to hear the announcement of, of the angels. He's risen. Go tell them. Mary at the tomb sees Jesus, thinks he's the gardener. You marry, you Marys, you, you ladies uh, are like these Marys, uh, a, a lot of you, faithful, upright, God-fearing, modest, all these wonderful things. And let me tell you, we appreciate you. We appreciate you, godly ladies, very much. Um, remember Timothy, his mother and his grandmother, we're told, were the influence upon his life. And ladies get a, a special place in the Scripture, especially Luke's Gospel. He mentions the women more than any, any other Gospel. So ladies, very grateful for you godly ones who remain godly. 
you are a great example, and you get honored in the text of the Word of God for not forsaking the Lord. The other disciples scattered when Jesus was arrested. Peter denies him three times. Ladies here at the foot of the cross observing it. Thankfully, we do also know that there was one of the apostles there, uh, John, who Jesus put his mother into his care. But ladies, thank you. Please continue to be faithful and minister the gospel to the nations. Church, be encouraged today. Because Jesus was forsaken, you will never be. And as we now sing to prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper, as you take the Lord's Supper, this is an example of him being forsaken for you, but a promise also that he's going to come back for you because you're not forsaken. Let's pray. Father, your word is powerful and living, and Lord, despite my delivery of it, I know that you honor the truth. And so, Father, I pray that you would please honor the truth this morning in our hearts. Your word is powerful, even when your servants aren't. And so, Father, honor this word. Cause it to bear fruit, please, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.